good morning, Kingsway. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And I must say that uh, when I woke up this morning, my heart was uh, filled with two emotions that can seem very contrary. Uh, The first is joy, that we serve a risen Savior who is alive and not dead. And the second was sorrow, because I miss you. And on this day of all days, I want to be in that auditorium uh, singing the praises of God with the people of God. And so I encourage you, if you haven't already this morning, uh, after our service is done, to put on some music, go out to your car if you need privacy, (laughs) and sing to the Lord uh, with all your heart. He is a risen living Savior. And I have been singing this morning and look forward to uh, doing the same this afternoon. Would you pray with me and ask for God's blessing as we look to his word? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we are not speaking to some memory of you or to a cold and and dead statue, a figment of our imagination. We are, when we pray, speaking to the risen, living, and reigning Savior of the world. Lord, we're grateful you're a God who is alive. And I pray that wherever my friends are listening to this, tuning in with us around the city or around the world, that you would help us now by your spirit to turn our eyes to you, Jesus. Help us to understand your word, to delight in your word, that we might love you as the living, reigning God you are every day. Help us, we pray now in your name. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, uh, many of us have lost things that we greatly value. Uh, Many of you have lost income. We've lost the opportunity together for corporate worship. We've lost time with friends. I was on the phone this week with one brother, a member of our church, who who just lost his mom uh, to COVID-19. And while our hearts grieve those losses, whether they feel big or small, I, I think in some ways they have yet to compare to the same sort of loss that a man named Job once experienced. We read in Job chapter one, verse one, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And there came a day when the Lord allowed Satan to test Job. And in a single day, think about this, through a variety of means, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, his sons, his daughters, and nearly all of his servants were completely destroyed. And Job's response in Job chapter 1, verse 20, I think is stunning. 
Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he continued blessing the name of the Lord, even when Satan followed up by striking him, Job 2.7, with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. I wonder, friend, how how have you responded the last few weeks as the Lord in the sovereign providence of his will has taken away things that you love and value? Job was understandably shattered with grief. Uh, The Lord would go on to do a a significant work of humility in Job's heart in the midst of his grief. Yet Job got the most important thing right from the very beginning of his suffering. What did he do? He continued to rejoice in the Lord, to bless the name of the Lord. So here's the question. What kind of person does that? (laughs) What kind of person loses practically everything this world has to offer? and yet continues to bless the Lord. What will enable you, friend, to rejoice in the Lord, to bless the name of the Lord, no matter what loss comes your way in this life, whether now or in years to come? Well, know this. Job's worship wasn't the product of some sort of denial or religious insanity. It was a response informed and governed by the surpassing worth of God. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. We're actually going to try to read this together in just a minute. Uh, The author of this Psalm, King David, was no stranger to loss. And yet, like Job, he continued to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of it. And I love Psalm 16 because it tells us why. And it shows us how. And it invites us to join David and and Job and all the saints who've gone before us in rejoicing in the Lord, even in the midst of our loss. So if you have your Bible or your smartphone out or you're reading on a second screen on your computer or TV, I just invite you to go ahead and read Psalm 16 aloud with me. Let's do that together. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. 
my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We don't know the exact situation that that prompted David to write these words. As with many of the Psalms, we, we do know that he acutely sensed his need for protection or refuge, right? The very beginning of the psalm tells us that. Something was happening in his life that threatened to shake him. He felt vulnerable and fear lay close at hand. You know, whether it's David's life or, or Job's life or your life, that there are always reasons to fear, aren't there? But what have we seen week after week as we've been studying these Psalms? We have better reasons to trust the Lord. Always better reasons. And and Psalm 16, I think, gives us one of the best. It's a reason we do well to remember every day, and especially on Easter, that here's the main point of this whole Psalm. The joy and life that we find in Jesus endures beyond the grave. That's the point. There's no loss in this world. No matter how great, they can steal away the delight that is ours in knowing and following Jesus. And and I say that, friend, not knowing at all what you're living for in this life. I don't know where you're looking right now for satisfaction in your soul or, or what you're chasing with all that you are. All of us are worshiping something, right? All of us are are looking to, asking something to give us joy. And the Bible says, and and our collective experience affirms, that you will never find joy in life apart from Jesus. Only Jesus can fully and eternally satisfy your soul. Which is why the Apostle Paul could say, with integrity, In Philippians 3, verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Think about that and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And so I read those words. I hear Job's words, I read Psalm 16, and if you're like me, here's the question that comes to my mind. How in the world do we get there? Okay, what what can we do now to prepare our hearts so that we're able to say gain in the face of tremendous loss? Well, the first part of Psalm 16, verses 1 to 8, describe a necessary step we must take what we need to do in order to get there. And the second part, verses 9 through 11, wonderfully describe the joy and life we will experience as a result. So here's the necessary step. If we want to join Job and Paul and David. Point number one, we take refuge in the Lord by choosing him as our greatest treasure. You know, as Christians... We know we're supposed to look to the Lord in hard times. But I find that we often have no idea 
what that actually looks like. Have you ever read something in your Bible like, in you I take refuge, and thought to yourself, maybe you didn't admit it to anybody else, but, but you thought to yourself, I sure wish I knew how to do that right now. I, I wish I had a place of, of safety and security for my ragged soul. Well, if you look at verse 2, I love this. It tells us exactly what it means, church, to take refuge in the Lord. And it's not an abstract thing. It's not a super spiritual thing. Even a a child could do it. Look at at verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So how do we take refuge in the Lord? We take refuge in him by choosing him as our greatest treasure. We choose to love him more than anyone or anything else because no one and nothing is more satisfying than him. And you know, at the same time, even as I say that, reading verse two again, it it can almost seem like David's words are kind of over the top. You know, no good apart from you? Really? No good? Are, are you saying, David, that, that the Lord is good and everything else is bad? Not good? Well, we know that's not right because of what he immediately says next in verse 3. Look there. As for the saints in the land, the people of God, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So, which is it, David? Is the Lord your treasure or are his people your treasure? Which one is it? What's the answer? Well, the answer is yes, right? It's, it's two sides of the same coin. David isn't contradicting himself. He's saying nothing, absolutely nothing, is better than knowing and loving God. Every other good pales in comparison to him. And, and it's but an echo of his splendor. And one of the ways we delight in the goodness of God is by delighting in the gifts he graciously gives and in which he too delights. Think about it. When, when we join God in loving his people, we're not just loving them. We're loving God himself. You know, it's the reason as a dad that, that when someone loves one of my kids, what happens? I feel loved, right? Kindness to them is an expression of kindness to me. That the same is true in our relationship with God, loving him and loving his people. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 22, 39, when he told us that the second greatest commandment, love your neighbors yourself, is like the first, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And so Psalm 16, verse Two reminds us that God is the ultimate source of every good thing in this life. And when we delight in his gifts for his sake, okay, receiving them with glad and grateful hearts, we're ultimately delighting in who? In him. You know, to, to sing the praise of a river is to sing the praise of the spring from which it flows. When it comes to our relationship with the Lord, we want to we be like a child on Christmas morning. 
who unwraps a, a new bike or some other gift. He's, he's longed for it. And with tear-filled eyes, what does that child do? He lunges into his daddy's arms, heart bursting with love for the one who demonstrated his love for them in such a great way. That's what we want to do. Loving God, even as we love the gifts he gives. But what are we prone to do, friends? Think about this. We're prone to receive good gifts from God and make them, instead of him, our greatest treasure. You know, the Bible calls that idolatry. So whether it's work or relationships or sports or sex, you name it, they're all good gifts and terrible gods. Why? Well, look at verse four. Because the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Just consider a few examples. You know, if success at work is your God, even if you're working from home these days, if that's what you live for or value as your greatest treasure, will you ever be satisfied? No. No, because you'll never be able to rest. Your satisfaction has been wedded to perpetual achievement. And so the moment you conquer one project or beat out one competitor, the rat race starts all over again. Your, your work, in other words, will never satisfy you. It will simply exploit you until you have nothing left. What about if you're living for a romantic relationship? If, if that's your God, what you, what you value is your greatest treasure. Some human being or person that you really care about. Well, will you ever be satisfied? No. No, all you've done is wed your satisfaction to a fallible human being who will inevitably fail to love you the way you feel like you've loved them. You'll get hurt. You'll be disappointed. You know, whenever we demand that another human being satisfy our soul, we eventually crush them under the weight of God-sized expectations. And their sorrows multiply along with our own. You know, I give those examples because we're living right now in an extended season of loss on multiple levels. And I think, friend, it has the potential to be the best thing that ever happened to you. Why? Because it can expose the poverty and futility of all the false gods that we worship and treasure more than the Lord. Is it wrong to miss the pleasures of normal life? No. But I want you to pay attention to, to whatever desires in your heart feel frustrated right now, friend. Pay attention to those things. Whenever the things we love the most are stripped away, the warning sign is that our joy begins to fade and fear begins to rise. And so that means that this pandemic is, is really a God-given opportunity to examine our hearts, to humble ourselves before the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal areas of our life where we've been running after another God. Look back at verse five, because this is the alternative. 
This is the opposite. Okay, if you're freshly aware of the poverty of the gods of this world, verse 5 shows you how to respond. Listen, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. He's my chosen portion. That, that word chosen is so important. There are many times, even as Christians, where God and relationship with God doesn't feel satisfying. It doesn't feel joyful. It doesn't feel good. Maybe right now in your life, nothing feels good. So what do we do then? Well, sadly, we sometimes say things like, well, God, if you're so satisfying and all that, you're going to have to come over here and wow me, and then maybe I'll decide to follow you. You make the first move. Friends, that's the exact opposite of verse 5 of choosing the Lord as our portion. If you say that, you're not choosing the Lord as your portion. You don't actually love God in that scenario. You know, like a drug addict, you're, you're trying to use God to get the emotional high that you crave. We don't bring, please don't bring your love cup to the Lord and ask him to fill it because everyone else has failed to do it. What, what do we do when we recognize the poverty of all the gods of this world? We confess our idolatry. We confess our sin. We confess all the ways we've looked to other people and things to satisfy our soul. We ask for God's forgiveness and then we choose him as our greatest treasure. We look to him as our spiritual food and drink, our portion and cup, not the material blessings he gives or even the emotional blessings that he gives and sometimes that he takes away. We choose the Lord as our portion. On the days it's easy and we feel like we're, we're riding in the clouds, like spending time with the Lord and prayer, reading his word. is just the easiest thing to do. We choose the Lord as our portion on the days it's hard. And he seems a million miles away. We don't will him into being a treasure he would otherwise not be by virtue of choosing him. We choose him because he is infinitely good and glorious. Even on the days he feels like nothing of the sort. If you do that, friend, what will you eventually discover? Look at verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Think about that. That verse does not mean the circumstances of your life will be perpetually pleasant and beautiful. Okay, it does mean that even in the midst of great loss, in knowing God and rejoicing in God, life remains and joy remains. That language of portion 
and boundary lines for the the Israelites who first read and sang this psalm would have evoked memories and images of the 12 tribes dividing the land after the conquest of Canaan. And in Numbers 18 verse 20, around this time, the Lord delivered a special message to the tribe of Levi through Aaron, the high priest. He said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So so the other tribes received a landed inheritance, but the Levites did not. They were set apart as priests to minister to the Lord. He was their inheritance. The the joy and blessing of, of intimate relationship with him and serving him was their reward. And friend, you can experience the same gift today by deciding to trust and follow Jesus. There's pleasure in knowing Jesus when everything in this world hurts. There's joy in anticipating eternal life with Jesus when everything in this world is stripped away. He's the pearl of great price, friend. He's the treasure hidden in a field. He's infinite in glory and wisdom and splendor and majesty. Nothing else satisfies the way Jesus does because no one else loves you the way Jesus does. I want you to remember that every other supposed God in this world will eventually exploit you. It will demand from you more than it ever gives in return. More achievement, more affection, more time, more money, and it will never be enough. What does the gospel tell us? The gospel says that God's love and delight in you as his son or his daughter, cannot be earned. It can only be received. It doesn't depend on what you do for God or give to God. It depends entirely, forever and always, on what Jesus has done for you through his life, death, and resurrection. Friend, if you choose him as your portion, if you trust and obey Jesus as your savior, you will find a wellspring of love, past, present, and future, that depends not on your performance. It pours forth abundantly and eternally from a hill called Calvary. The gods of this world say what? Give to me and then I'll love you. But they never keep the promise. Jesus says, I have freely and completely and eternally given myself to you. And now I invite you to love me in return. If you take refuge in the Lord by choosing him as your greatest treasure, the love of God will define you. The love of God will keep you. The the love of God will hold your lot 
that the relationship you have with him, all the spiritual blessings that are yours in him, including the the counsel and instruction in verse seven, they're secured by his faithfulness, not your own. Think about that. If the Lord is your portion, then the Lord holds your lot. What's that mean? That the Lord himself secures your eternal joy and life in Jesus. It's not even the strength of your faith that guards that reward for you, friend. It's the faithfulness of God to you. You don't hold the keys to your future if you're in Christ. Jesus does. And our inheritance in him, our risen Savior, could not be more beautiful. You know, John Calvin captured it this way in a sermon that he preached some 400 years ago. I love this. Through the finished work of Christ. This is your beautiful inheritance, Christian. Think about this. Your bad things will turn out for good. Your good things cannot be taken away from you. And your best things are yet to come. That's beautiful. (laughs) And David knew that, which is why he could say what in verse 8? Because the Lord is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So what's the necessary step we need to take? We need to take refuge in the Lord by choosing him as our treasure. That's the step. Now, what's the result? Well, here's where verses 9 to 11 are so helpful. They tell us what happens as a result. Point number two, when Jesus is your treasure, everlasting joy is your reward. When the Lord is the one you're looking to every day to satisfy your soul. When Jesus isn't just, in other words, part of your life. Oh yeah, I'm, a, I'm an employee, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a good neighbor. And yeah, I, kinda, I go to church too. You know, it's good to have Jesus in the mix. No, when Jesus is the supreme treasure of your life, that's what David's talking about. Guess what happens? What's the result well, verses 9 to 11 show us that at that point, this is such good news, friend, Even, especially in a time like this, earthly troubles and difficulties can no longer steal your joy. Your, your joy is, is out of reach of all those things. No, no matter what happens, no, no matter how long the coronavirus craziness goes on, they can't get, they can't steal your joy because it's secure in Christ. Look at verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad And my whole being rejoices. What's David saying? Even if you lose everything this world has to offer, you still have the one thing that not only matters most, but also dwarfs every other material pleasure. What's that? You have the Lord. And the joy in life that we find in Jesus endures beyond the grave. As David says, my flesh, my my physical body dwells secure. Well, why is that? Look at verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David expected he would die. He also knew that the God to whom he had given and entrusted his life would not leave him in the grave. He might not have known how, he probably didn't know when, but he was confident in light of the covenant faithfulness of God 
that God would not abandon his soul. Your physical death would not be the final word over his life. And friends, that was not a vain hope. It was actually a prophecy inspired by the spirit of God. Though Israel, David's descendants, would have to wait more than a thousand years for it to be fulfilled. In the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 22, the apostle Peter one of the first sermons ever preached quotes from this Psalm and says this, listen, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He's preaching that in the temple before thousands of Jews. And then he concludes, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he Jesus was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God, raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Do you realize that's what we're celebrating on a Sunday like this? What, what David anticipated by faith, what he looked forward to by faith, we look back on and remember and celebrate with great joy, friends, that Jesus right now, is alive. Because Psalm 1610 isn't ultimately about David. It's about Jesus, the eternal son of God born into the line of David. Jesus is the Lord in verse 8. Jesus is the Holy One in verse 10. He lived the perfect life you were supposed to live. He died the death you deserve to die on account of your sins. And because God the Father did not leave him in the grave, Christian, you can rest assured, no matter how crazy this world gets, that God the Father will not leave you in the grave either. Jesus' resurrection guarantees your own. What what did the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22? For as in Adam all die... 
so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. And then at his coming, when he returns, those who belong to Christ. So what will we be made alive to do? When Jesus comes back and our, our bodies are resurrected from the grave for those who are found in Christ. What, where does the path of life that David talked about in the psalm that we walk now by faith ultimately end, friend? Well, it ends with rising from the grave to enjoy eternal life in the presence of God. That's where it ends. That's when we get home. That's when all the sorrows of this world and, and all, all the losses we're experiencing even right now are suddenly seen as what? Light and momentary troubles compared to the glory of seeing Jesus. You know, we experience the joy of his presence now, even in part through the gift of the Holy Spirit. But on that day, what are we going to get? We're going to be able to see Jesus face to face. We're no longer going to have to fight for joy through tears of sorrow. When we see him, we'll finally experience what David said in verse 11. There is in your presence fullness of joy. We experience the pleasure of reigning with Jesus in part even now. Because the Father has already what? Ephesians 2 6, raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And yet, on that day, when we're at His right hand in a physical sense, and every one of Jesus' enemies is made a footstool for His feet, we will discover what? The very end of the psalm, pleasures forevermore. Friend, on this Easter morning, I want you to banish from your mind the terrible and impoverished notion that the best things, the greatest joys, the the deepest pleasures are found in this life. They're not. They never will be. They are still waiting for the people of God in heaven. The beautiful inheritance of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The resurrection of Christ ensures the best is yet to come. So what does that mean as we walk the the path of life, the path of obedient trust in Jesus here and now? Because we're not there yet, obviously. Things like the coronavirus remind us of that. Well, it means all who cling to Jesus by faith are secure. We have reason to be glad. Even in the midst of a pandemic, we have reason to rejoice, body and soul, because the joy in life we have in Jesus, what? It endures beyond the grave. When Jesus is your treasure, you can lose everything this world has to offer, and everlasting joy will still be your reward. That is what happens when the resurrection of the living Christ puts your joy out of reach in him. Even in great sorrow and loss, Job knew 
that the Lord would vindicate him. Like David, he might not have known how or when, but he knew the Lord would vindicate him. He knew the Lord would eternally reward him for making him his treasure, even if he had to wait to experience it. And and Job declared as much in Job 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Christian, you can say that today. And not just today, but, but every day. Today, I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold and not another. And then what does Job say? My heart faints within me. Not not from terror, but from joy. Does your heart faint within you, friend? Do you think about the hope of the resurrection? Do you long for that day? Secure in God's love for you, even now, because Jesus is your treasure. Or are you frantically scurrying about in this life, in this world, trying to have your best life now? As some might say, we can. If you want to experience the path of life, if you want to discover true joy, that no pandemic and no stock market crash And no breakup text, let's just be friends, can ever take away from you. You actually don't have to wait for heaven. You can know the joy of trusting and obeying Jesus right now. Right now. Confident in the future, David's heart was what? Glad right now. Confident in the future, David's whole being rejoiced right now. His flesh dwelt secure right now. And so I urge you, take refuge in the Lord by choosing him as your treasure. And you will find, friend, everlasting joy now and for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's really strange to be celebrating Easter Sunday over a live stream. Every part of my heart wants to be in that auditorium right now, singing the praises of the risen, reigning Savior. Lord, we don't know why you deny us various points throughout our life, sometimes many points, with the emotional experiences of joy that we long for. But Jesus, I pray that, that whether we are waiting for this pandemic to conclude or our body to be healed, or someone to ask us out on a date, 
or an employer to make us an offer or a relationship to be reconciled or a thousand other sorrows and losses that we experience in this life. I pray right now on this Sunday, Lord, as we are freshly familiar with loss, that we would, as your people all over this city, choose you as our portion. Holy Spirit, right now, help us. We can't do that apart from your grace. By your grace, for your glory, for our good, help us to choose you. To not sit around and wait till you wow us or give us a, some sort of emotional high, but, but to humble ourselves, to confess our idolatry, to recognize the, the way your resurrection reminds us and assures us that, that there's no enduring joy in this life. It's only found in you. Lord, thank you for teaching David that. Thank you for reminding us of that this morning. I pray that our joy in you, our risen reigning Savior, who is alive and well and on the throne, no matter what goes down, would abound and grow this week. In your name I pray. Amen.